welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is a consultant cardiologist at York Teaching Hospital in the north of England. And he has a specialist interest in cardiac imaging, but he is also has a popular social media presence and can often be seen on YouTube and Facebook doing videos on cardiac subjects. And he's covered whole sorts of subjects such as palpitations, ectopics, atrial fibrillation, POTS, anxiety and stress, magnesium. And I hope to speak with him on a couple of those subjects. In particular, one is uh, magnesium, which you've got over one and a half million views, I think it is, which is quite astounding. Uh, So congratulations on that. Thank you. You've got over 150,000 subscribers as well, which is very, very impressive. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. So what's been your drive, actually, to sort of put out stuff on social media platforms? It started about five years ago, and uh, I'd sort of, you know, eased into my consultant post. And then I wanted to sort of start, I wanted to do some private work, and someone said to me, oh, well, why don't you put something out on YouTube just so that people know who you are, you know, and just talk about simple cardiac things. So I put out, I think, four or five videos. They were really amateurish, you know, really, really amateurish. But I was surprised to get the responses when I when I put them out. I was surprised that, you know, people were commenting on them and saying they found it useful. And I realized that there was a gap in terms of you know the, in terms of knowledge the public wanted the public craved more knowledge about heart conditions and they were really not getting it from the usual sources probably because doctors these days are very busy they don't have time and a lot of patients just need a little bit more information to be able to understand and understand their condition uh, so when I started noticing these responses, I thought, wow, this is really good. You know, this is some, these people are appreciating me. They think that what I have to say is interesting and useful. And that took a life of its own. And I started doing this more often. And I started putting lots and lots of videos. And the audience has grown. And it's all very um, satisfying. I get a lot of appreciation. It's given me a lot of joy in my life. Uh, and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a worthwhile thing doing. And you, you mentioned, well, I mentioned the uh, the magnesium video, and you say um, patients want that information. The fact that you've got one and a half million views, it just shows that. And the, I think there's over 7,000 comments on that video as well, which is incredible. I was surprised when I put that video out, and I was surprised by the response. A lot of people who have subsequently started taking magnesium as a supplement have come back to me and said it's made a real difference to how they feel uh which is great because that you know that was the aim the aim was to empower people to make choices which were right for them and um yeah i I have to say i was very surprised at how well that video did well some of the, the more recent videos that you've done um have been around the subject which is on everyone's lips at the moment and everyone's thoughts which is the coronavirus covid-19 pandemic. Can you tell me what what, what you've been doing on that and, and why you've been doing those particular videos? 
I mean, I think the it has all taken us a little bit by surprise, the COVID-19, you know, how how big it's become, how quickly. Uh, and we all, uh, as part of what we do, had to educate ourselves on everything that is known about this. The problem is a lot of the information that has come has come straight from the battleground, so to speak, you know, from China, where people are fighting this condition or were fighting this condition from Italy. Uh, so there's very little that is known about this in a controlled environment. So you're you're getting information which is which is just it is straight from the battlefield, so to speak. Very difficult to make sense of it, and certainly the problem is there are certain things that come out, and people um, unfortunately just assume that association is causation, especially with certain drugs, for example, with the COVID thing, and. Um, as part of my job as a cardiologist, I was getting asked a lot about this. So I sort of decided I would put it together in a way I understood it and put it out there. And uh, that's why I did a video on uh, the virus and ACE inhibitors, which are a common type of medication used for high blood pressure and heart failure. I was also keen to do uh, a video on the COVID-19 virus and people who have POTS or dysautonomia, because this is, again, a very poorly understood subject. A lot of people suffer from this condition called POTS. They're rendered very debilitated. And then something like this comes along and there was a ton of anxiety out there and no one really talked about this. So I thought I would put something uh, out there again, largely in a reassuring uh, tone so that you know people felt that, okay, this is not something that is necessarily going to be life-threatening in them but sure as long as you you know you understood you took the necessary precautions and if you were unlucky to be struck by it did the kind of things that helped then people would be able to cope with it reasonably well uh, I also did a video on uh, why certain you know so there was this thing that came out which was that patients with high blood pressure are more prone to have a poorer outcome with the COVID-19 virus. And I was trying to make sense of that myself to try and understand why. Is that an association? Is that causation? Um, and again, you know, there are a ton of people out there who've been diagnosed with high blood pressure. And I was trying to make people understand that just because you have the label high blood pressure doesn't really mean you know, it doesn't mean that you have the process going on. And it is those people who have the process going on who are probably going to be more vulnerable than those people who just have a slightly high number on one occasion for which they've been put on medication. So trying to make people understand that if you have high blood pressure, it doesn't mean you are all at the same risk. Different people have different risks and we can be a little bit more kind of um, precise with who is at a higher risk and who isn't. So those were the three videos I've done on the COVID-19 uh, epide epidemic. I mean, my, my uh, podcast or this podcast and my group, the Sudden Cardiac Arrest, is is full of people who've had a cardiac arrest. And But I want to, th this subject's in, um, applicable to everyone, basically. So I'm quite happy to sort of widen the, the conversation out if, 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 um, sure. if need be. And... One of the, the things, you know, we get questions in the group is about, does this uh, apply to me? Am I, am I at risk because I take X, Y or Z? Or am I at risk because I've had a heart attack or I've got a stent and all those sort of things? So 
going from the the, the government webpage on um, social distancing, it, it talks about those who are increased risk of severe illness from COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. They should be particularly stringent with social distancing measures, but it doesn't really say very much apart from the fact it it lists uh, a number of. Um, illnesses or diseases and one of those is chronic heart disease so what are we actually talking about with the term chronic heart disease who does that mean (laughs) and that's a really difficult one but to my mind if we think about how any illness affects the body when you have something like this where you know the two fundamental processes that are required to keep the body going is you want to get oxygen in carbon dioxide out so you want a good pair of lungs uh, to exchange oxygen and you want a circulatory system and you want a strong circulatory system which pumps the blood around to collect that oxygen so when we talk about chronic heart disease to my mind it is those people who have things like heart failure where the heart is weak so the heart is not heart is already working harder to try and get blood around the body if you then add in something like a um, an intercurrent illness like the like the virus then the heart will be asked to do a lot more the the demands are increased significantly and that is where the heart will struggle to get the the blood round and because of that the person is likely to decompensate i think about it logically those are the people I think are at a much higher risk. The first thing I would say is what we are realizing is that everyone should take all the measures to try and not get the virus because it isn't just the people who are more vulnerable. You can be young, you can be completely fit, and you could just be really unlucky and have a very, very severe form of the illness. But if you are you know, older, you are frailer, and that I think is really important. Frailty is really important. So you can be 70 and you can be a really good 70-year-old, and then you could be 17, you could be quite frail, you could be, uh, your mobility could be poor, you may have, um, you know, you may have uh, spinal issues, so you can't breathe as well, etc. So I think, I think there is a difference between that group who has who is frailer compared to the group of the same age who are really healthy. Same with heart disease. I think those people who have had damage to their heart, those people are going to be a lot more vulnerable. If a person has scar within their heart, so if you've had a heart attack previously and there is scar within the heart, even though the heart may not look weak on our traditional kind of tests, I think those people are likely to be more vulnerable. When we say vulnerable, we don't mean that they're like more likely to catch it, but more likely, or there's a possibility that they might have a a worse outcome, as it were. Absolutely, I think anyone, if they catch it. Yeah, I think anyone can catch it. I think uh, those people who have an already compromised system, so an already compromised circulatory system, or an already com- compromised respiratory system, are more likely to have a protracted course of the illness and are more likely to suffer complications. You you mentioned something earlier, which is decompensate. What does that mean? Okay, so in terms of decompensation, if we talk about a condition called heart failure, uh, what happens in heart failure is that the heart is um, not able to pump out as much blood as it should. Because the heart is not able to pump out as much blood as it should, 
there's less blood going around the body and in particular to the kidneys. The kidneys sense this reduction in the blood that, they, that they're getting and try and absorb more water from the urine to try and restore the circulating volume. Unfortunately, the circulatory system cannot accommodate this extra bit of water and that bit of water over a period of time starts accumulating within the lungs. And that is when people start becoming acutely breathless and you know the lungs fill up with water. So you can have heart failure, which is nice and compensated, meaning that with medications and everything else, you're getting rid of this extra water, and therefore the circulatory system continues working. The minute you increase the demand, the heart has to work harder. Because it's having to work harder, you can then result in this kind of condition where you start accumulating the water again. The water can then accumulate within the lungs. It's a condition called pulmonary edema. Once you get water in the lungs, and everything gets worse. Your breathing gets much worse. If you have bugs in the lungs, they sit there and they can, uh, you know, they multiply. So that is what I mean by decompensation. You mentioned about heart attacks there. If people's got um, scarring or they've um, occurred damage during that, will they know that if there's someone's had a a cardiac arrest and they've um, gone through the treatment they've had, say, a stent or a bypass, would they be told whether they've got damage to their heart? Would they know whether they've got a degree of uh, heart failure? What What is the term of heart failure? So the current, um, the, the, the way we currently diagnose heart failure is by doing a scan after a person has had a heart attack. And if on the scan the heart looks weaker, this is a term uh, that is commonly used called the ejection fraction. How much blood does the heart eject with each contraction? And in those people who've uh, suffered substantial damage to the heart, the heart is pumping a lot less with every contraction. So th that is how we diagnose heart failure. Virtually every patient these days who has had a heart attack will have an echocardiogram. And will probably be told how much damage they've had done, they've have suffered. It is true to say that this is still a very crude test. The echocardiogram is still a very crude test. You know, you're only looking for large areas which are not contracting, and that will then tell you that the heart is weak. The reality is, if you've suffered a heart attack at any point, you will have some scar. It may not be big enough to cause the heart to look weak on your scan but you still have some scar. And therefore, anyone who has had a heart attack will always be at a higher risk compared to someone who's never had a heart attack, no matter how much damage. If you have sustained a large amount of damage, then of course, the risks are much greater. But even if you've sustained a small amount of damage, by the very virtue of the fact that you've had a heart attack, that again increases your risk. It increases your risk of another heart attack. It risk increases the risk of heart rhythm disturbances. And when you have an intercurrent illness, either of those things can happen. And um, and that that would be, you know, that that is the that is the fundamental problem with suffering a cardiac event. Uh, it increases your risk of bad things happening in the future. Is is there a sort of a, a guideline or a level of the ejection fraction where we say uh, that you are in heart failure or that your your heart is relatively healthy yeah so 60% is the value so 60% is defined as being normal 
if you are uh, below, say, 45%, then they say that you have a weak heart, you have heart failure. If you are below 35%, then that is considered severe heart failure. Okay, and going on from that, if if you've had stents or a bypass or um, maybe some more serious um, treatments like a, a valve replacement, uh, are they um, a problem as well? Are they they increase your risk? Well, I can't see why they should. Again, it depends on why you had those things done. So, if you had a valve replacement, valve replacements are generally done for hearts which are on the verge of sort of weakening, you know, so normally we don't replace heart valves unless the valve is so bad that it is causing the patient major symptoms or it is causing the heart to weaken. So when you fix the valve, yes, you know, you you sort of corrected the problem, but the heart has still gone through a period of strain. And therefore, I do think that that does increase the risk somewhat. Now, with bypasses and stents, I think it depends on whether the bypasses and stents were put in because the patient had had a heart attack and it was a means of trying to sort of correct that or, you know, correct the blockages that caused the heart attack or whether they were done for a person complaining of stable angina. Stable angina meaning they were just complaining of some chest discomfort every time they walked, they went and had an angiogram, they found that they had a narrowing and someone put stents in. That's different to if someone's had a heart attack and they then go as an emergency to hospital and then they go and someone goes and puts a stent in to relieve the blockage causing the heart attack. It's a slightly different situation. So where the patient has already had a heart attack and the treatment has been done to try and um, get them out of that corner, the risks are probably going to be higher than when the procedure was done electively for a person who was just complaining of some chest discomfort on exertion. That makes sense. And um, moving on in terms of heart conditions, what about um, cardiomyopathy and people with arrhythmias? So I think those people, so cardiomyopathy basically means disease of the heart muscle. The commonest form of cardiomyopathy is, you know, heart failure. So uh, a weak heart because of previous heart attacks, or sometimes people can have a weak heart because of a genetic problem. Uh, sometimes they can have it uh, because they've they've um, they've suffered a, uh, they've had a virus or something like that. But again, with a cardiomyopathy, the fundamental issue is that the heart is not able to do its job as a pump as well as it should. It's interesting with the COVID nineteen virus. It is uh, it has been shown that it does affect the heart in some people and it can cause the heart it can cause some damage to the heart muscle as well. So this is a myocarditis. It can cause a myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart. So if you have a cardiomyopathy and if you had the COVID-19, one, your heart is not able to function as well as a pump and you're increasing the demands on it. So that's a bad thing. Two, the virus itself can cause the heart to weaken further and that's a bad thing as well. So that's the cardiomyopathy group. The arrhythmia group Undoubtedly, those people who have arrhythmias are going to have a higher incidence of more arrhythmias 
when they're unwell. Intercurrent illness will increase the risk of heart rhythm disturbances, no matter what your heart rhythm disturbance is. So if you have atrial fibrillation and you become sick, you're more likely to have more atrial fibrillation. If you have ectopics, you're more likely to have more ectopics. I don't think that means that you are in any major danger, uh, but it is just certainly with the sustained heart rhythm disturbances like atrial fibrillation, etc., it does just compromise the body further when you are unwell. So if you're sick and then you develop an episode of atrial fibrillation, well, that's your heart working even harder and being even less efficient. Relatively easy to get the patient out of it, but it just adds to the complexity of that patient at that time. And for people who do have arrhythmias, they may have some sort of cardiac implant, like a pacemaker or, or like myself, I've got an ICD. Is there anything extra we need to think about for those people? No, I, I don't think this is a condition that will cause an infection of the, uh, the implant. The big risk with any implant pacemakers or defibrillators is they can get infected. Uh, but usually if they're going to get infected, they get infected with bacterial infection rather than viral infection. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> and um, many of uh, cardiac patients like myself, um, and as you've done your videos on, will be taking medications of various sorts. And you, you touched on um, ACE inhibitors earlier. Could you tell us a little bit about more about those and, and another popular one that patients are on, like myself, is uh, beta blockers as well? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing to say is that, again, the problem with the data we have, as far as I understand, is that what we know is that patients in different age groups were admitted with the virus. Those people who were older did badly. High blood pressure, diabetes, etc. is more common in older patients. And those patients who have high blood pressure are more likely to take certain medications. So it's very difficult to work out whether there is causation with any of the medications and, you know, mortality, whether the medications are in some way to be implicated for the mortality or whether they're just a confounding thing, whether they're just bystanders. Maybe these people just didn't do well because they were old. Maybe they didn't do well because they had the comorbidities like high blood pressure. High blood pressure keeps bad company. So maybe that's the reason. The ACE inhibitors have become very uh, topical at the moment. ACE inhibitors are uh, a particular set of medications which are, which are used in people who have high blood pressure or people who have heart failure. And what they do is they, in research studies, there's some very good evidence to say that they improve patient outcomes. So they improve prognosis in people with heart failure. And even in patients with high blood pressure, ACE inhibitors improve prognosis in the long run. What uh, we found uh, from some studies was that when you have this ACE inhibitor, the drug acts on an enzyme called ACE, angiotensin-converting enzyme. If you look at the urine of patients who are taking ACE inhibitors, they express another enzyme called ACE2. The COVID virus seems to attach onto the ACE2 receptors in the lungs, and that's how it gets in. So the problem was obvious, which is that if these people are expressing more ACE2, they have more, they have, probably have higher levels of ACE2 in their bodies, and therefore 
the virus can therefore get in. So that was the kind of proposed mechanism. And there was a paper in The Lancet that was published where someone said, look, you know, we think that might be a mechanism. Unfortunately, it's incredibly difficult to tease out. You cannot uh, categorically say that it is the ACE inhibitor that is exposing these people to the more severe forms of disease. All the big uh, associations, all the big cardiology bodies have come out and said, no, we don't think that there is reasonable amounts of evidence to suggest that this is causation, and it is more likely just to be an association. The problem is that if you stop the ACE inhibitor, people can get much worse. They can decompensate again from their heart failure. So you can actually, and if you have a decompensated patient, he does much worse in the long, much worse with any intercurrent illness. So this is the problem. You know, there's there's these little chunks of information. There aren't any proper controlled studies. And because of that, people are panicking because they think, oh, you know, if this virus needs ACE2 and if I'm taking an ACE inhibitor, um, I have more ACE2, maybe I'm more vulnerable to the virus. And so people are saying, well, switch me, take me off my ACE inhibitor. But the worry there is that you then risk upsetting the apple cart in an otherwise stable patient, and that could make everything worse. And and what about beta blockers? I haven't, uh, certainly, I am not aware of any reason why beta blockers would increase the risks from the infection. Those people who take beta blockers are more likely to be sicker people anyway. They're more likely to have underlying comorbidities, etc. So beta blockers are prescribed for angina. They're prescribed for heart rhythm disturbances. They're prescribed for heart failure. And so if you're taking a, and they're also sometimes prescribed for high blood pressure. So if you're taking a beta blocker, you're likely to have significant comorbidities anyway. And therefore, again, very difficult to prove it is most likely an association rather than causation. For patients that um, have have gone through a cardiac arrest or have had a heart attack, um, and and people even like myself who are idiopathic, we all know that we should be social distancing, but there's that other category of people who should be self-isolating and not be interacting with anyone for for 12 weeks, you know, not Mm. going to the shops and... Um, not going out almost essentially um how do we know whether we should be in that category or not or is there a category in between the sort of you can you're an okay person but you're not one of these i think it's one and a half million really high risk people but uh, is there a, a group in between those no i think i mean you know the problem is again uh this is a group that group of patients is probably quite a small group of patients compared to the number of people who have high blood pressure, for example, and compared to the people who have diabetes, etc. So unfortunately, the data hasn't come out to say, you know, um, the patients with a cardiomyopathy are, uh, are in that really high risk group. I would think I would think that if you have a cardiomyopathy, it is probably best to stay away and do everything possible not to get the condition. So to my mind, I think, you know, if I were, uh, if someone asked me, I would say, yes, I would uh, socially isolate, uh, largely because, not because I have convincing proof that that is what should be done. But I think these are patients who are higher risk regardless. And therefore, they should do everything they can to try and avoid getting the condition. 
Yeah, that sounds very sensible to me. <laughs> Have you got anything else that you would like to say to sort of sum up the current situation to to um, put people in the picture and uh, allay any fears or unnecessary fears? I know it's going to be impossible to do that. Um, and people's anxiety levels are, are skyrocketing at the moment. But if you've got any other little tidbits of information that you could uh, impart? The reality is what's going to happen is going to happen. And we just have to, some of us are going to be spectators and some of us are going to be participants. Uh, but at a time like this, it's really important to uh, reflect on those things that are important in life. And I think there are two things I would say, and I'm sure that this is a view shared by a lot of people who listen to your podcast who have been through the trauma of what you um, talk about, uh, and that is both gratitude and humanity. Uh, you know, uh, at a time like this, when everything is just going crazy, it's important to be grateful for what we do have and to appreciate what we do have. And also to be human and to be kind and kind to those who are less fortunate. Uh, because really, when when you are left questioning the meaning of life at times like this, I think it boils down to those two things. Yeah, I think that's uh, in incredibly wise words there. And we all need to sort of uh, keep calm and just remember who we are. And uh, this will end at some point. We've just got to make sure we, we get through it the best we can. And I'd just like to add, um, really, thanks to to you and all of your colleagues in the NHS doing an absolutely fantastic job. And I know you're going to have a, a hard few weeks and maybe months ahead, but um, we, we do value you and uh, you. we do thank you as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. And I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org and you can find us by googling Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books Life After Cardiac Arrest on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time. Bye.